You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Your Brain on Facts back catalog. I'm your host, Moxie Labouche. A little bit of context before the episode begins. For these early episodes, I was still learning to edit the audio. Some of them sound bad because I didn't edit enough, and then some sound worse because I edited too much. Please take the audio quality with a grain of salt and understand that it was growing pains. And now, our feature presentation. At the time of this recording, it's been 14 months since the 2016 election in which the Electoral College chose not to elect the first female U.S. president. Most people know that Hillary Clinton wasn't the first woman to run for the high office. But did you know that the first female candidate for president ran before women were even allowed to vote? I'm Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Victoria Clayfin, later Victoria Woodhull, was one of ten children born to an illiterate mother and a petty criminal father. Woodhull attended school sporadically for a few years. At age 15, she married a doctor who soon revealed himself as an alcoholic philanderer. To make matters even more difficult, Woodhull gave birth to a mentally handicapped son at age 16. Three of Woodhull's siblings had died as children, and she felt she had clairvoyant powers to communicate with them. Always looking for a new scam to run, her father put her and her sister Tennessee on the road with a faith-healing and fortune-telling business, selling elixirs that promised to cure everything from asthma to cancer. They didn't. In fact, Tennessee was indicted for manslaughter after one of her patients died. By some good fortune, the sisters found themselves with a wealthy patron in the form of railroad magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt. He and Tennessee were rumored to be lovers. Stock tips that she gleaned from the relationship proved handy during the 1869 gold panic, during which the sisters claimed to have netted around $700,000. With Vanderbilt's bank rolling, Victoria and Tennessee then opened their own highly publicized firm named Woodhull, Clayfin & Company, becoming the first female stockbrokers on Wall Street. However, they were never granted a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. It would take another near century before Muriel Siebert did in 1967. In the same year that she became a stockbroker, Woodhull attended her first suffragette rally and immediately became passionate about the cause. She befriended, or beguiled, congressmen to get her an invitation to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. She argued that women did already have the right to vote under the 14th and 15th Amendments. Those granted persons born or naturalized in the United States citizenship and prohibited voter discrimination they declined to enact any legislation on the matter. Even still, the appearance made her a celebrity among suffragettes. In April 1870, just two months after opening her brokerage firm, 
Woodhull announced her candidacy for President of the United States on a platform of women's suffrage, regulation of monopolies, nationalization of railroads, an eight-hour workday, direct taxation, abolition of the death penalty, and welfare for the poor. Woodhull helped organize the Equal Rights Party, which nominated her at its May 1872 convention. Famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass was selected as her running mate. However, he never acknowledged it and, in fact, campaigned for incumbent Republican Ulysses S. Grant. Woodhull's name only appeared on ballots in some states. No one knows how many votes she received, because apparently they weren't counted. All of this was essentially moot, considering Woodhull would not reach the constitutionally required age of 35 until six months after the inauguration. It would be 1964 before a woman was actively considered for the nomination of a major party when Margaret Chase Smith qualified for the ballot of six state primaries, even coming in second in Illinois. The only female candidate other than Clinton was Faith Spotted Eagle, a Native American activist who received a vote from Robert Saktiakum Jr., who is referred to as a faithless elector for not voting as pledged. Saktiakum also voted for Winona LaDuke for vice president. LaDuke is an executive director of Honor the Earth, a native environmental advocacy organization that plays an active role in the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. The late 20s and early 30s were a good time to be a Yankees fan, with instantly recognizable names like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig at the height of their careers. Yet both were struck out by a player whose name you've probably never heard, Jackie Mitchell, before she was even old enough to vote. Trained by neighbor and professional pitcher Dizzy Vance, and booked by showman promoter Joe Engel to the AA team The Lookouts, Jackie drew attention with her sinking curveball, back then referred to as a drop. She received a fair amount of press coverage before the game against the Yankees, and it was as snarky and condescending as you would expect. Nevertheless, on that day in 1931, the two members of Murderer's Row fell to her arm with six strikes and one ball in seven pitches. It's widely believed that her contract was voided by baseball commissioner Kennesaw Landis because females were too delicate to play ball every day. What the evidence supports is that her inclusion was viewed as a promotional stunt, like hot dog eating contests and greased pig chases. There may be some truth to this, since she would later tour the country playing with gimmick-based teams, something like a cross between P.T. Barnum and the Harlem Globetrotters. Further, claims would be made that the matchup was fixed, with the Sultan of Swat and the Iron Horse playing along to make Jackie look better than she was. The counter-argument to that being, if you were Babe Ruth, would you admit to being struck out by a high school girl? If you're a fan of Futurama like this reporter, and that name has been naggingly familiar to you, Jackie Anderson was a one-off character in the episode Alila of Her Own, where she became the first non-gimmick professional Blurnsball player. Given the factual references the writers are known for including, it's not hard to think there's a connection there. The first American woman to win gold in the Olympics passed away 55 years after competing without ever knowing that. At the 1900 Paris Games, Margaret Ives Abbott, born in 1878, won the women's nine-hole golf tournament on May 22nd, narrowly beating out England's Charlotte Cooper, who won the tennis singles event on July 11th, to claim firsties. She was awarded a porcelain bowl rather than a medal, something not done before or since in the Summer Games. 1900 was the first year in which women were allowed to compete, seeing 11 female contenders in the more ladylike sports of golf, 
tennis, and yachting. The Olympics were held as part of the 1900 Paris World's Fair, but due to poor organization, many competitors, including Abbott, didn't realize that the events they participated in were actually part of the Olympics and not part of the wider World's Fair. Other events held at the fair but not approved by the International Olympic Committee included kite flying, motorcycle racing, and firefighting. The official competitions included cricket, croquet, a variation of handball called basque palata, tug-of-war, and swimming, for which one winner was awarded a 50-pound bronze horse statue. This was also the only Olympic Games in history to see live animals, specifically pigeons, as targets during the shooting event. Some 10 million people were glued to their television sets on Saturday nights in 1993 to follow the trials and tribulations of pioneer and pioneering female physician Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. Little did fans know, the first female doctor in America had received her license a scant two decades before the show takes place. Elizabeth Blackwell was born into a then-prosperous British family, the third of nine children in 1821. Blackwell loved scholarship and helped support her family by teaching alongside her mother and two sisters after the death of her father. The inspiration to study medicine came from a friend who was dying of cancer and complained of the difficulty in being examined by a male doctor. Blackwell's pursuit would be no mean feat, as women were considered not only intellectually but morally unfit to practice medicine. Not to mention, little higher education was available to women, and medical schools were, as they are now, expensive. Blackwell read medical textbook in her landlord, Dr. Reverend John Dixon's library, while continuing to teach and save money for tuition. After being rejected by all 29 medical schools in Philadelphia and New York, Blackwell began applying to lesser-known schools, eventually being accepted at the Geneva Medical College of Western New York State. The administration had actually let the students decide whether or not to admit a woman. The boys had all thought it was a big joke and voted yes. A woman studying medicine was such an aberration at the time, people would stop and stare at her on the street. Blackwell stayed focused and devoted herself utterly. Even though she started mid-term, she became the head of her class and stayed there until she graduated in 1849 at age 28. A medical degree was no blank check, however. When Blackwell went to Europe to broaden her studies, no hospital would accept her, except for one in Paris and only on the condition that she be a student midwife and not a physician. Her dreams of being a surgeon would be taken from her as well, along with an eye, by purulent ophthalmalia, a form of conjunctivitis often arising from gonorrhea which she contracted from a patient. Germ theory and widespread hand washing for doctors were still a decade away. Moving back to New York, Blackwell determined to open her own practice, but no landlord in the city would rent to her. Eventually, she hung her shingle in Jersey City, where business was initially slow. To get her name out, Blackwell began giving lectures on women's health and wrote articles on the importance of good hygiene, exercise, and physical education for girls. Her sister Emily would receive her degree in 1853, and the two opened a women's and children's clinic in the slums of New York, along with a German midwife-turned-doctor, Marie Sekwerska. After the first clinic closed, they opened the New York Infirmary for Women and Children, which still exists as the Beekman Downtown Hospital. It not only served the poor, but provided a training facility and positions for female medical and nursing students. 
Blackwell would return to England to lecture and became the first woman to have her name entered on the medical register of the United Kingdom. A constant advocate for sanitary conditions, Blackwell helped to establish the U.S. Sanitary Commission in 1861, a private relief agency created by federal legislation to support sick and wounded soldiers during the American Civil War. She also contributed by organizing a unit of female field doctors and nurses. In 1868, she founded the Women's College of the New York Infirmary. One of the school's students was Sophia Blake, who would later open a medical school for women in London. Among the infirmary's first residents was Dr. Rebecca Cole, only the second African-American woman to become a doctor. Cole received her degree in 1867, two years after the end of the Civil War and three years after Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Elizabeth Blackwell overcame many hurdles that society had positioned between her desire to be a doctor and actually becoming one. For Rebecca Lee Crumpler, the journey would be even more difficult. Born in 1831 in Delaware, Crumpler was raised by an aunt in Pennsylvania who spent much of her time caring for sick or invalid neighbors. At age 21, she moved to Boston, where she would work as a nurse for eight years. Crumpler would train on the job, as the first formal school of nursing wouldn't open until 1873. She was admitted to New England Female Medical College in 1860 on a scholarship from the Wade Scholarship Fund, which was established by the Ohio abolitionist Benjamin Wade. At that time, of the 54,000 physicians in the United States, 300 were women, none of whom were African American. 
As late as 1920, there were only 65 African-American women doctors in the United States. On March 1, 1864, the Board of Trustees named her a Doctor of Medicine, making her the first African-American woman in the United States to earn the degree, and the only African-American woman to graduate from the New England Female Medical College until it closed nine years later. After the American Civil War ended in 1865, she moved to Richmond, Virginia, believing it to be, quote, a proper field for real missionary work and one that would present ample opportunities to become acquainted with the diseases of women and children. She also provided medical care to freed slaves under the U.S. Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, an unpopular agency which existed for seven years, though it was only intended to last for one year after the end of the war. It will come as no surprise that Crumpler was subjected to intense racism and sexism. According to one source, men doctors snubbed her, druggists balked at filling her prescriptions, and some people wisecracked that the MD behind her name stood for nothing more than mule driver. In 1883, she published a book of medical discourses from the notes she kept over the course of her career, one of the first books by an African American about medicine. It was dedicated to mothers, nurses, and all who may desire to mitigate the afflictions of the human race, and focused on the medical care of women and children. Crumpler described the progression of experiences that led her to study and practice medicine. It may be well to state here that having been reared by a kind aunt in Pennsylvania, whose usefulness with the sick was continually sought, I early conceived a liking for and sought every opportunity to relieve the suffering of others. Her book also contains much of what we know about Crumpler in its introduction. Few records and only one possible photograph of her have survived. Three years before the death of Rebecca Crumpler in 1895, Bessie Coleman, the first female African-American pilot, was born the tenth of thirteen children in rural Texas. Her father was a tenant farmer who, along with her older brothers, abandoned the family leaving Coleman to care for her younger sisters as her mother struggled to provide for them. Through this, Coleman managed to get to the one-room school four miles away, or borrow books from a traveling library wagon when she couldn't. Coleman was able to pay her way through one semester of Langston University in Oklahoma, working as a laundress, but the cost of continuing forced her to drop out. Coleman moved to Chicago, where two of her brothers lived, both had served in World War I and told stories of French women who could be pilots. Seeing no reason that she couldn't be a pilot as well, Coleman sought out every flight school she could find. Every one turned her down, whether it was for being a woman, African-American, or both. Undeterred, Coleman figured that if women in France were allowed to fly, then that was where she should go. So Coleman found herself the only female and only person of color at Caudron Brothers School of Aviation in Le Crotoy, France, where she completed the 10-month course in seven months. On June 15, 1921, Bessie took the test for her pilot's license and passed. She received her license from Fédération Aeronautique Internationale. Now that she had the pilot's license, she had to find a way to earn a living with it. In the early days of aviation, the only way to earn money was to give rides or entertain people with aerobatic flying, prompting Coleman to return to Europe for six months of advanced aviation training. Debuting in the U.S. in September 1922, 
the diminutive Coleman wore a military-looking uniform to help her seem more official and important as she boarded her plane. The crowd was amazed as she performed figure-eights, loop-de-loops, barrel rolls, and other barnstorming stunts. She became Queen Bess, Daredevil Aviatrix. The legend of Queen Bess spread, and Coleman began to draw huge crowds wherever she went. When Coleman returned to her home state of Texas to perform in 1925, she refused to perform at venues with segregated gates. Even with her great success, a career in performance aviation was expensive, with plane repair, doctor's bills from a bad crash, and even the purchase of a new plane. In addition to this, it was Coleman's dream to open a school of aviation for African-American students. Saving for that school was difficult, so Coleman began supplementing her income with lectures, parachute jumping, and wing walking. On April 30, 1926, while preparing for an air show in Jacksonville, Florida, Coleman went with her mechanic at the controls to scout locations for parachute jumps the following day. Observers reported the plane went into a dive and flipped. Coleman was thrown from the plane, dying instantly. The plane crashed to the ground, killing the mechanic. It was later determined that a loose wrench had become jammed in the controls. Some 10,000 people attended Coleman's funeral in Chicago. Three years later, the Bessie Coleman Aero Club was established. The school Coleman dreamed of trained many outstanding African-American pilots, including Willa Brown and the Tuskegee Airmen. For years afterwards, the Challenger Pilots Association of Chicago and later the Tuskegee Airmen did a flyover of Lincoln Cemetery on Coleman's birthday to honor her. While barnstorming was the thing to see in the Roaring Twenties, if you ask a member of Generation X or older to name a famous stunt performer, they would say Evil Knievel, the motorcycle jumping holder of Guinness's world record for the most broken bones in a lifetime, at 433. But when it comes to originality, Knievel pales in comparison to Annie Edson Taylor, the first person to survive going over Niagara Falls in a barrel in October 1901. This was a dangerous and exciting feat of daring-do, pulled off by a very proper and arguably boring person. Widowed by the Civil War, Taylor was having trouble making ends meet on her schoolteacher's salary. From her home in Michigan, she read about the Pan-American Exposition, a World's Fair being held in Buffalo, New York, which would later be remembered primarily as the scene of President McKinley's assassination. Taylor was struck with an idea for what was essentially an absolutely bonkers retirement plan. With hundreds of thousands of people in the area for the expo, Taylor set her sights on fame and fortune. With the sometimes reluctant help of two assistants, Taylor made a pickle barrel five feet tall by three feet wide and outfitted it with cushions, including a lucky heart-shaped satin pillow and a leather harness to hold her in place, as well as lead weights at the bottom to keep it upright. She tested the barrel with a cat, who thankfully survived. If you look online, you can see a photo of Taylor posing with the barrel and a surprisingly calm cat. The plunge was set for October 24th, her 63rd birthday, though she claimed to the press to be 43. Even with everything in place, the stunt almost didn't happen. The crew of the boat, tasked with towing the barrel to the middle of the fast-flowing Niagara River, were reluctant to help with what seemed likely to be a polite older woman's suicide. Finally, at 4 p.m., Taylor was sealed into the barrel, towed to the appointed spot, and cut loose. 
The rapids knocked the barrel around violently for nearly 20 minutes before it plunged over Horseshoe Falls. Taylor emerged from the barrel, badly shaken, with a small laceration on her scalp, but otherwise unharmed. Fame came immediately, and left almost as quickly. Photo ops and speaking engagements were set up for the woman dubbed Queen of the Mist, but Taylor reportedly lacked any kind of charisma as a speaker. Audiences found her somnambulant, meaning she put them to sleep. The public quickly lost interest and moved on. Making it even more difficult to pull in the crowds, Taylor's manager, Frank Russell, absconded with the famous barrel, the key visual of her presentations. He also took much of her earnings, and Taylor spent most of her savings hiring private investigators to find him. Though Taylor would die penniless in a nursing home at age 82, the name Queen of Mist lives on in the form of a tart barrel-aged beer from Martin House Brewery in Texas, as well as an off-Broadway musical that premiered in 2011. Taylor was even the subject of an episode of the Nickelodeon game show, Legends of the Hidden Temple. She's buried in what is called the Stunters section of the Oakwood Cemetery in Niagara Falls, New York. The first man to survive going over the falls was Bobby Leach, who used a custom-made metal barrel that looked rather like a submarine, and in which he fractured both kneecaps and his jaw. Leach was able to parlay his accomplishment into a lucrative career, until he died from injuries sustained from slipping on an orange peel. Taylor nearly didn't have the title of first person to survive a barrel-borne trip over the falls. A month earlier, in September 1901, an attempt was made by one Maud Willard. Disaster struck when her barrel became caught in a whirlpool for several hours. When the barrel was finally pulled from the river, Willard was found dead of suspected suffocation. She had taken her pet fox terrier with her, and the dog, having better survival instincts than its owner, had lodged its nose in the barrel's only air hole. While braving the falls in a barrel may seem like a quaint old-timey activity, like barn dances or chasing a metal hoop with a stick, as recently as 1995, a man went over Horseshoe Falls on a jet ski. In case this story has planted the germ of a dangerous idea in the listener's mind, please be aware that of the 15 people who went over the falls, for reasons other than suicide, five have died. Also, going over the falls, with or without a vessel, is illegal on both the New York and Ontario sides. Despite inspiring more than a century's worth of copycats, Taylor herself was not an advocate of anyone else surmounting the falls. If it was with my dying breath, I would caution anyone against attempting the feat, she was quoted as saying. I would sooner walk up to the mouth of a cannon knowing it was going to blow me to pieces than make another trip over the fall. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. It should go without saying that this is far from being a comprehensive list of female firsts. We've barely begun to scratch the surface of the lives of women who broke with tradition and eschewed gender stereotypes, women who paved the way for the relative freedom we experience even today. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.
you find it hard to sleep at night, then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.